podcast for me and my house season two. Thanks for joining us in your homes and around your tables or in your small groups as we dive into our church-wide study entitled Promises Kept, the whole story of the Bible. Yes, and what we're jumping into today is Genesis chapter one and the first half of session one in our study, session one called A Very Good World. If you're following along with the Promises Kept study guide at home, take note that we are dividing each chapter into two halves. So right now, we are doing part one of chapter one. Okay, so everybody at home can have fun discussing this question on their own, but uh, Lauren, here's the question for you. What is the most naturally beautiful or spectacular part of the world that you've seen, and how did you feel when you visited it? Well, I've always loved waterfalls and their majestic beauty. I remember going on camping trips with my dad and hiking into some amazing waterfalls in Washington State on Mount Rainier and around Lake Chelan. As a teenager, I had an experience I will never forget. I remember standing before a glorious waterfall and feeling like I was incapable of taking in the magnitude of its beauty. I was not able to fully take it in. I couldn't breathe in the fullness of the experience. It was a strange happening that I will never forget. But when I came to know the Lord, he drew my attention back to that experience, and I could see why I wasn't able to fully enjoy the fullness of the beauty. The reason is that the consummation of any joy is found in praise, and I was unable at the time to praise the Maker, to praise the Source, to praise the Glorious One behind this glorious creation. Hmm. So in other words, to truly grasp the glory of that waterfall, you needed to trace it higher up and further back all the way to its true source. Right. Well, yeah, that's actually how our study begins. We're going to be looking back, way back, to the very beginning today, to the very start of world history, to the very first words of the Bible. And that is Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. You know, here we have central affirmations of biblical Christianity that which sets itself apart from uh, all kinds of philosophies and other competing religions. This is contained in these three words in this first verse, beginning, God, and created. Mm. In homeschooling right now, my son is working on finding the main noun and verb in each sentence. And it is unmistakably clear here. The main noun in this first verse of the Bible is God. He is what this sentence is all about, and he is what all of scripture is all about. It is not a book that is about us. It is a book about God, and we can't forget that. Okay, and so what do we learn about God from this? And the first thing that we learn is that he is eternal. Mm -hmm. It says in the beginning, there's that word beginning. Let's pause on that. We're told something here that's vital, uh, something that's even maybe controversial, And this is that there was a beginning for our universe. And that's really the very name of this first book, um, what it affirms, that the universe was generated. It had a genesis, a beginning. The universe, the planets, and time itself came into existence at a starting point. And this reality of a beginning is of great importance. It, It begins to answer life's biggest questions, like how did we get here? And if we can understand how we got here, we can begin to to understand why we're here and where we're going. And one result of a beginning, again, contrary to many philosophies, is that history is not going round and round on some kind of endless 
cycle or cosmic merry-go-round, right? Yeah, and your life is not simply on a cosmic hamster wheel, busily going nowhere, but it has a beginning, and that implies a story, a grand cosmic story that you and I have been written into. And if history has a beginning, it begs the question, how did it get started? Uh, not from nothing, right? Uh, to borrow from Shakespeare, nothing can come from nothing. And even if we think we got here by chance, well, chance by definition would be something. And this just brings us back to the main subject in this verse and in all of life, God. And what did he do? He created. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. He is the creator and we are his creation. We are not the point. He is the point. He alone can tell us why we were made and what we were made for. Because we have a creator, we know that the world and all that is in it is not an accident. Life has purpose. We are not the product of the blind process of chance. We are not cosmic accidents with no inherent purpose. We have a creator and a purpose. And it's clear in this passage that our creator God existed before creation. He has always existed. Nobody created God. He has existed eternally as Father, Son, and Spirit. And out of his overflowing love, he creates the world. And how does he do it? Hmm. Well, in verse 3, we learn that he did it by speaking. But let's look first at verse 2. Verse 2. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. So just think what we have here before God speaks out of his creative genius. Before he gets into uh, speaking into the world, we learn that the world um, that he made was first, you know, without form. It was void and darkness was over the face of the deep. So there was formlessness, emptiness, and darkness. Lauren, these are three of the most threatening ideas, mm. isn't it? Mm -hmm. uh, ideas that, that scare us. I mean, think about it absolute formlessness. Uh, that's just absolute chaos. Mm -hmm. uh, emptiness. That is the worst sensation of the soul, right? An empty house, but not just an empty house or an empty bed or an empty garage, an empty earth. Mm -hmm. And darkness, uh, that's a purely negative term. It's not the presence of something, but is the absence of something. So all we have here is this void and then with four powerful words, light bursts through the darkness. Verse 3, and God said, let there be light. And there was light. And so how did God create? By the sheer power of his command. He spoke. This is amazing. His word is powerful. It is authoritative. He speaks and it happens. The same could be said about the word of God, our scriptures, the Bible. It is authoritative. It is his very word to us, and it is powerful and effective. Hebrews 4.12 says it is living and active. And just as God accomplishes his purposes with his spoken word in Genesis 1, he will accomplish his purposes through his written word as well. So God creates by speaking, and in the following verses, we get an orderly account of what God has made and how he's made it. Now, we believe these verses to be a literal account, uh, six 24-hour days to create the heavens and the earth. And the structure here is amazing. You know, I love the symmetry of the days. The first three days speak of God forming the earth, and the last three days are God filling the earth. So the earth was formless, but on day one to three, he forms them. 
and then they're no longer void because on days four to six, he fills them. Yeah, it's remarkable. On day one, he creates light, and on days uh, four, he fills the heavens with more light, the sun, the moon, the stars. On day two, he makes sky and sea, and on day five, he fills the sky and sea with birds and fish and sea creatures. And then on day three, he makes dry land. And then on day six, he fills the dry land mm-hmm. with living creatures, animals, and humans. Mm-hmm. You know, here's a simple truth. Only God can make life and only God can fill life. Mm-hmm. And all of this says so much about what God is like. He's powerful. He's orderly. He's creative. Just look at the symmetry of a snowflake or the intricate designs on a gecko, the vivid colors of tropical birds, fiery sunsets, roaring waterfalls, amazing sea creatures, majestic mountains. Or, uh, you know, look at the golden pheasant, right, Lauren? Mm. We saw this bird called the golden pheasant at the historic O'Keefe Ranch in Vernon just last week. And um, it's also called the rainbow pheasant. And yeah, it was amazing. It was amazing. Um, it, it's, yeah, <laughs> you got to go see this bird at the O'Keefe Ranch. And if you can't go there, uh, Google it. That right. would be maybe almost as good. Yeah, his creation declares his glory. Psalm 19, 1 and 2 says that the heavens declare the glory of God. The sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech and night to night reveals knowledge. Yeah, so God is orderly. He's creative. And you know, in this short passage that uh, is written here in Genesis, you know what we find in these verses? Uh, five times we find this phrase that when God created these things, that he did it according mm-hmm. to its kind. Mm-hmm. That's an important phrase, according to its kind. Uh, I would encourage you to go to verse 11, go to verse 12, and go to verse 25, and you're going to find that phrase five times. Um, but why did God keep repeating this phrase? Why, did God, uh, why, why, why is this being repeated over and over again? Mm-hmm. And you know what? Here I believe this is a not-so-subtle way of God telling us that he designed things to work a certain way. Certain kinds of things would only produce its own kind. Mm-hmm. In other words, you couldn't get a lavender plant from an apple seed. And you couldn't get oranges from corn stalks. You know, I really like um, how this musical troupe called Rain for Roots, it's a group for kids. I like how they sing this song. It goes like this. They say, apples don't grow on pear trees. Apples don't grow on pear trees. Apples don't grow on pear trees. No apples there. It only grows pears. And here's the takeaway. God is a God of distinction. According to its kind, God is telling us something. He's telling us that evolution doesn't happen, not macroevolution anyway. He is saying, I made all these things. I made them to work the way that they work, and the way that I designed them in their kind is good. So what do we see? Right out of the gate, we are to see and know that when we start messing with God's fundamental designs, we are messing up his design, and how life works well and how it works best. Mm. Another thing, according to its kind, this tells us is that God's design is dependable. We can know that if we plant parsley seeds and beet seeds and carrot seeds like we did last spring, we're going to be able to get parsley and beets and carrots at harvest time. 
We don't have to fret and wonder what's going to pop up. And if we entrust our lives to God and his designs for all of life, we will also find him to be dependable to us too. It's a small thing, but it's huge because these simple words written thousands of years ago clearly illustrate that we, what we see in nature. Plants, animals, and humans still procreate, each according to its kind. What are we to think of this? Well, we don't get to decide, actually. We get to agree. Right. We get to agree with God's assessment. As we look at the first five days of creation in Genesis, the phrase, and God saw that it was good, pops up four times. It's important for us to take this in, that this material world that has been made, that God declared it good. You know, later on in the New Testament, there was, in the New Testament, there was this Gnostic heresy that, that developed um, in and around early Christianity. And that heresy stated that the material world was evil and only the spirit was good. Well, here we see, though, that the material world that God made was pronounced good. Mm. So everything that God created, the way God created it, and because God created it, it's good. And he is the authority on his own work, and his verdict is the final one. And think how, again, like how authoritative God's creating work is. You know, let's face it, like we, all of us, like you at home, all of us, we, we're creative. We like to create things. Uh, we create on paper or canvas or in the kitchen. Um, but when you and I are creating, what are we really doing? Well, we're simply rearranging what has already been made. You know, when our kids pick up the paintbrush, they're merely taking up substances that are already there and they're uh, shaping them and moving them and mixing them carefully, placing them here and there, here and there. But these are pre-made elements on a canvas. But when God created, okay, when God created, it was out of nothing. There's a phrase for that called ex nihilo out of nothing, out of no preformed substance. So if anybody is an authority on the created order, it's God. He gets to decide what is good. And so we see that God is the creator. He's powerful. He creates out of nothing simply by the command of his word. And he's orderly. He makes distinction. He decides what's good. Yet at the end of the sixth day, we read, God saw all that he had made and it was very good, not just good. So why the difference on the sixth day? Yeah, well, the difference is, well, you see, um, is that with everything we've looked at so far, we have not even yet come to the apex of God's mm. creation. God's not done yet. You could say that God also, uh, that God also coined the term saving the best for last, mm. because now at the end of this, at the end of this creative order comes the best part. He creates mankind. He creates you and me. And so here is a slight difference in how God makes things on days one to five and how he creates on day six. Over and over, we hear, let there be, and there was. Um, and then, but now on day six, we hear this. We hear, let us make. Hmm. Yeah, we say in scripture, God says, let us make man in our image to be like us. We hear this triune discussion and the topic of discussion is the pinnacle of his creation. He desires to form humanity for relationship with himself. He spoke everything into existence except humanity. He formed us with his very own hands and he breathed into us the breath of life, 
verse, chapter 2, verse 7, Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. You see, there's something so special, so intimate, so precious about humanity to God. Yeah, so special because of what God declared in, in this. It says that we are made in the very image of God. Let us make man in our image after our likeness. You know, what this means in the simplest of terms is that we were made to resemble and to reflect God. It's as though the Lord looked out over all that he had made before, the fish, the birds, the animals, and he said, this is good, yet not one of them bears my image. Not one radiates my likeness. Let us make a being that will truly reflect my glory and mirror my likeness to the world. And so God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. And for sake of clarity, God did not make us gods. That's one thing God cannot do. He cannot clone himself. If, if he were to make a god, by definition, it would not be God because it was created. We are not gods, but we reflect particularities of him. And so in what ways do we reflect God? Here the theologians can go on for a long time, but here are a few ways we image God. Yeah, one way is that, is that we would image God uh, mentally because God is an intelligent, thinking, rational being. We also are able to participate in this incredible phenomenon that we call thinking, learning, knowing, and reasoning. So mentally, but secondly, uh, morally. Hmm. We are also moral creatures with a moral nature. The Lord has given us a conscience and a will and emotions to make decisions and actions for moral choice. I mean, we can know right and wrong. Right. And third, we can image God relationally. Socially, humanity was created for fellowship. This reflects God's triune nature and his love. In Eden, humanity's primary relationship was with God. Uh, Genesis 3.8 implies fellowship with God. And we as humans are made in the image of God and have a unique capacity for relationship with God that the animals do not have. We can seek him. He can seek us. And God made the first woman because it is not good for man to be alone. Genesis 2.18. Every time someone marries, makes a friend, hugs a child, or attends church, he or she is demonstrating the fact that we are made in the likeness of God. And I think this is especially good to consider in this COVID season, that it is not good for man to be isolated. We, we need each other. We are made in the image of a triune God, made for relationship and interaction with God and with others. And so we are God's special work with a special capacity to be like him, to display his character, such as his holiness, his love, truth, righteousness, mercy, and beauty. Yeah, and maybe though we don't always feel like that's happening. Hmm. And as we think about what is not right with our lives, um, this is a good picture to fill our minds with. That we're not, you know, we're not really just empty cups that need to be filled up by God. Not nearly as much as we are broken mirrors. Hmm. Uh, broken mirrors that need to be put back together again so that we can rightly reflect hmm. who God is. Mm -hmm. And you know what? Here's the good news. That is exactly what the gospel of Jesus Christ does. Um, the good news is that when uh, God redeems an individual, he begins to restore the original image of God mm. in that person. Mm -hmm. Okay, so that redemption is only available by God's grace through faith in Jesus Christ as our Savior. 
from the sin that separates us from God. But when we come to him this way, that restoration begins. That's why the Apostle Paul will say later on in Colossians 3.10 of Christians, he'll say, you have put off the old self, literally the, the, the old man. You've put it off with its practices and have put on the new self. Now check this out, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator, mm-hmm. Colossians 3, 9 to 10. Mm-hmm. And so this image of God, this imago Dei, it's foundational and it's incredible. So now what are the implications for how we are to view and live life? And you know what? There's just so many. So here's a few. Right. We have dignity and worth. Every life matters. We are made differently than the rest of creation and we are of greater value than, say, the animals. Putting your dog down is different than putting your grandmother with dementia down. Every human being has a special value, dignity, and worth. We would say that turtle eggs are not more valuable than human babies. Because we believe every person is made in God's image, we have a strong stance against abortion and for the unborn. A baby growing in the womb is not just a clump of cells, but an actual baby with a beating heart made in the very image and likeness of God. The theology of Imago Dei is what overthrew slave trading in history and was the fight of the civil rights movement. At the root of every confrontation of injustice is the fact that we are all made in the image of God and we are of immense worth regardless of race or gender. Every person matters. Sex trafficking and pornography are Imago Dei issues. We should care about them. No human being should be used and abused. Okay, another factor here is next to dignity is dominion. We have a unique position in God's creation. Chapter 1, verse 26b says this, And God said, And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. You know, for a cross-reference, Psalm 8 is a a beautiful um, poetic description of this as well. But what we see here is that we are made as caretakers of creation. Uh, We're managers, we're stewards. Uh, It also speaks to the reason why, you know, all of us are, are in a sense curious adventurers. We are granted permission to explore everything in creation from under a a telescope to, uh, to, to a microscope. Um, I mean, doesn't this explain our, our insatiable curiosity to learn, to travel the world, and to explore. I mean, think about this. Your frustration of not traveling during this pandemic can be traced all the way back to the dominion that God has hardwired into the human soul. Hmm. Okay? But then there's another implication as well. Yeah, and that's for gender and sexuality. They're defined. In chapter 1, verse 27, it says, So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. We are made in the image of a triune God as male and female. We are made for relationship. And God made us male and female to reflect different aspects of what he is like, to put him on display in different ways. Mankind was created as male and female in relationship to display something of the divine relationship that exists within the triune God. There is unity and equality in this relationship, but distinction and differing function. More about this next week. Let us wrap up by asking how this applies to our lives. How does humanity's place in creation make us valuable? 
We are valuable. Where do we get our sense of value from? Is it opinions of others? Changing our status of our looks, career, health? You know, it's amazing to me to think about the fact that the triune God, who existed in perfect fellowship with one another throughout all eternity, Father, Son, and Spirit, that, that this triune God had no need of us, um, that he would create this world and create us even knowing what it would cost him to rescue us. This shows us how valuable we are to him. He didn't need to create us. It's not as if he were lonely and needed our relationship, but he decided to create us out of his overflowing love. And our God is omniscient. Our God knows what will happen. Our God knows that Adam and Eve will sin and that the entirety of humanity will rebel against him. And more than that, our God knows that if he creates this world, the only way to save this world is very costly. It is humbling to think that we, as his creation, are so precious and valuable to him that he would create us knowing full well what it would take to rescue and save us. Yeah, and so how does humanity's place in creation then also make us humble? You touched on that a little bit. Hmm. But you know what? Maybe worse than not being in charge is believing you're in charge when you're really not. Hmm. And this is humbling because what we learn from this passage today is that we don't get to decide why we were created. God decided all of this. He's the creator. We're the creation. He's the potter. We are the clay, Isaiah 64, okay? And this should humble us, and it should liberate us as well. I mean, are you or I really qualified to run the world? I mean, I think we see the results of man running the world. So this makes us valuable, humble, also accountable. Accountable because there is a creator God. And we will have to give an answer. We'll have to give an account to him at the end of our lives. Right. And it also shows that life is purposeful. Knowing God as creator makes life purposeful. This was a powerful realization for me in my own life and was an influential factor in me submitting my life to the Lordship of Christ. When I came to see that he was my creator, it became clear to me that he alone knew why I was created and what I was created for. I had wasted my life running after my own vain attempts to find purpose. And when I came to see that he is the one who created me and he defines my purpose, I submitted my life to him knowing that he knew better than I did the direction my life should take. It was then that I began to experience joy and satisfaction for the first time in my life as I realized I was created to worship, to love, to serve, and to glorify my maker. This life is not about my glory, which is what I was running after, but it's about his. And when we get that right, we experience a great joy in the depths of our soul. We were created to point to him. Yes, and so at the end of the sixth day, after making humanity, we read in Genesis 1.31 that God saw all that he had made, and it was very good. At the end of the sixth day, God is finished with his work of creation and he's looking back at everything that he has made. In this entire creation, from the smallest subatomic particles to the largest galaxies spinning in space, everything works exactly as he planned. So what is the promise in this text? The implicit promise of Genesis 1 and 2 is that the creation will be very good. That is what God says this world will be like. But today... Our world is only a poor reflection 
of the world as it was created. I think we all know that. Hmm. And so we must wonder and we must ask, can the world that God promised, can it be recovered? Or has his plan gone wrong? Well, this is what we will examine in part two of this same chapter. So join us again next time in our Promises Kept study as we will finish the second half of chapter one, A Very Good World. <laughs>